Chapter 43 of the Pickwick Papers. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please go to www.librivox.org. This chapter read by Patty Brugman. Chapter 43. Showing how Mr. Sam Weller got into difficulties. In a lofty room, ill-lighted and worse ventilated, Situate in Portugal Street, Lincoln's Inn Fields, there sit nearly the whole year round one, two, three, or four gentlemen in wigs, as the case may be, with little writing desks before them, constructed after the fashion of those used by the judges of the land, barring the French polish. There is a box of barristers on their right hand, there is an enclosure of insolvent debtors on their left, and there is an inclined plane of the most especially dirty faces in their front. These gentlemen are the commissioners of the insolvent court, and the place in which they sit is the insolvent court itself. It is, and has been, time out of mind, the remarkable fate of this court to be somewhat or other held and understood by the general consent of all the destitute, shabby, genteel people in London as their common resort and place of daily refuge. It is always full. The steams of beer and spirits perpetually ascend to the ceiling, and, being condensed by the heat, roll down the walls like rain. There are more old suits of clothes in it at one time than will be offered for sale in all Houndsditch in a twelfth month. More unwashed skins and grisly beards than all the pumps and shaving shops between Tyburn and Whitechapel could render decent between sunrise and sunset. It must not be supposed that any of these people have the least shadow of business in, or the remotest connection with, the place they so indefatigably attend. If they had, it would be no matter of surprise, and the singularity of the thing would cease. Some of them sleep during the greater part of the sitting, Others carry small portable dinners wrapped in pocket handkerchiefs or sticking out of their worn-out pockets and munch and listen with equal relish. But no one among them was ever known to have the slightest personal interest in any case that was ever brought forward. Whatever they do, there they sit from the first moment to the last. When it is heavy, rainy weather, they all come in wet through, and at such times the vapors of the court are like those of a fungus pit. A casual visitor might suppose this place to be a temple dedicated to the genius of seediness. There is not a messenger or process server attached to it who wears a coat that was made for him. Not a tolerably fresh or wholesome-looking man in the whole establishment, except a little white-headed apple-faced tipstaff, and even he, like an ill-conditioned cherry preserved in brandy, seems to have artificially dried and withered up into a state of preservation to which he can lay no natural claim. The very barristers' wigs are ill-powdered, and their curls lack crispness. But the attorneys who sit at a large bare table below the commissioners are, after all, the greatest curiosities. The professional establishment of the more opulent of these gentlemen consists of a blue bag and a boy, generally a youth of the Jewish persuasion. They have no fixed offices, their legal business being transacted in the parlors of public houses or the yards of prisons, 
whither they repair in crowds and canvas for customers after the manner of the omnibus cads. They are of a greasy and mildewed appearance, and if they can be said to have any vices at all, perhaps drinking and cheating are the most conspicuous among them. Their residences are usually on the outskirts of the rules, chiefly lying within the circle of one mile from the obelisk of St. George's Fields. Their looks are not presupposing, and their manners are peculiar. Mr. Solomon Pell, one of this learned body, was a fat, flabby, pale man in a surtout, which looked green one minute and brown the next, with a velvet collar of the same chameleon tints. His forehead was narrow and his face wide, his head large and his nose all on one side, as if nature, indignant with the propensities she observed in him in his birth, had given it an angry tweak, which it had never recovered. Being short-necked and asthmatic, however, he respired principally through this feature. So perhaps what it wanted an ornament it made up in usefulness. I'm sure to bring him through it, said Mr. Pell. Are you, though, replied the person to whom the assurance was pledged. Certain sure, replied Pell, but if he'd gone to any irregular practitioner, mind you, I wouldn't have answered for the consequences. Ah, said the other with open mouth. No, that I wouldn't, said Mr. Pell, and he pursed up his lips, frowned, and shook his head mysteriously. Now the place where this discourse occurred was the public-house just opposite to the insolvent court, and the person with whom it was held was no other than the elder Mr. Weller, who had come there to comfort and console a friend whose petition to be discharged under the act was to be that day heard, and his attorney he was at that moment consulting. "'And where is George?' inquired the old gentleman. Mr. Pell jerked his head in the direction of a back parlour, whither Mr. Weller at once repairing was immediately greeted in the warmest and most flattering manner by some half-dozen of his professional brethren, in token of their gratification at his arrival. The insolvent gentleman, who had contracted a speculative but imprudent passion for horsing long stages, which had led to his present embarrassments, looked extremely well, and was soothing the excitement of his feelings with shrimps and porter. The salutation between Mr. Weller and his friends was strictly confined to the freemasonry of the craft, consisting of a jerking round of the right wrist and a tossing of the little finger into the air at the same time. We once knew two famous coachmen, they are dead now, poor fellows, who were twins, and between whom an unaffected and devoted attachment existed. They passed each other on the Dover Road every day for twenty-four years, never exchanging any other greeting than this, and yet when one died the other pined away and soon afterwards followed him. "'Vell, George,' said Mr. Weller, Sr., taking off his upper coat and seating himself with his accustomed gravity. How is it? All right behind and full inside? All right, old fellow, replied the embarrassed gentleman. Is the grey mare made over to anybody? inquired Mr. Weller anxiously. George nodded in the affirmative. Well, that's all right, said Mr. Weller. Coach taken care on also. Consigned in a safe quarter, replied George wringing the heads off half a dozen shrimps and swallowing them without any more ado. "'Werry good, werry good,' said Mr. Weller. 
always see to the drag when you go down hill. Is that the evil all clear and straight hour?' "'The schedule, sir,' said Mr. Pell, guessing at Mr. Weller's meaning. "'The schedule is as plain and satisfactory as pen and ink can make it.' Mr. Weller nodded in a manner which bespoke his inward approval of these arrangements, and then, turning to Mr. Pell, said, pointing to his friend George, "'Then do you take his cross off?' "'Why?' replied Mr. Pell. "'He stands third on the opposed list, and I should think it would be his turn in about half an hour. I told my clerk to come over and tell us when there was a chance.' Mr. Weller surveyed the attorney from head to foot with great admiration, and said emphatically, "'And what'll you take, sir?' "'Why, really,' replied Mr. Pell, "'you're very—' "'Upon my word and honour, I'm not in the habit of—' "'It's so very early in the morning that actually I'm almost—' "'Well, you may bring me three pennyforth of rum, my dear.' The officiating damsel, who had anticipated the order before it was given, set a glass of spirits before Pell and retired. "'Gentlemen,' said Mr. Pell, looking round upon the company, "'success to your friend. I don't like to boast, gentlemen. It's not my way, but I can't help saying that if your friend hadn't been fortunate enough to fall into hands that—but I won't say what I was going to say. Gentlemen, my service to you.' Having emptied the glass in a twinkling, Mr. Pell smacked his lips, and looked complacently round on the assembled coachman, who evidently regarded him as a species of divinity. "'Let me see,' said the legal authority. "'What was I a-sayin', gentlemen?' "'I think you was remarkin' as you wouldn't have no objection to another all the same,' said Mr. Weller, with grave facetiousness. "'Ha, ha!' laughed Mr. Pell. "'Not bad, not bad.' A professional man, too. At this time of the morning, it would be rather too good, eh? Well, I don't know, my dear. You may do that again, if you please. Ahem. This last sound was a solemn and dignified cough, in which Mr. Pell, observing an indecent tendency to mirth in some of his auditors, considered it due to himself to indulge. "'The late Lord Chancellor, gentlemen, was very fond of me,' said Mr. Pell. "'And very creditable in him, too,' interposed Mr. Weller. "'Here, here,' assented Mr. Pell's client. "'Why shouldn't he be?' "'Ah, well, indeed,' said a very red-faced man, who had said nothing yet, and who looked extremely unlikely to say anything more. "'Why shouldn't he?' A murmur of assent ran through the company. "'I remember, gentlemen,' said Mr. Pell, dining with him on one occasion. There was only two of us, but everything as splendid as if twenty people had been expected. The great seal on a dumb waiter at his right hand, and a man in a bag wig and suit of armour guarding the mace with a drawn sword and silk stockings, which is perpetually done, gentlemen, night and day. When he said, Pell, he said, no false delicacy, pal. You're a man of talent. You can get anybody through the insolvent court, pal. And your country should be proud of you. Those were his very words. My lord, I said, you flatter me. Pal, he said, if I do, I'm damned. What did he say to that? inquired Mr. Weller. He did, replied Pell. Well, then, said Mr. Weller, I say Parliament ought to add. Take him up. 
and if he'd have been a poor man, they would have done it. Oh, but my dear friend, argued Mr. Pell, it was in confidence. It what? said Mr. Weller. In confidence. Oh, very good, replied Mr. Weller, after a little reflection. If he damned his self in confidence, of course that was another thing. Of course it was, said Mr. Pell. The distinction's obvious, you will perceive. Alters the case entirely, said Mr. Weller. Go on, sir. No, I will not go on, sir, said Mr. Pell in a low and serious tone. You have reminded me, sir, that this conversation was private, private and confidential, gentlemen. Gentlemen, I am a professional man. It may be that I am a good deal looked up to in my profession. It may be that I am not. Most people know I say nothing. Observations have already been made to this room injurious to the reputation of my noble friend. You will excuse me, gentlemen. I was imprudent. I feel that I have no right to mention this matter without his concurrence. Thank you, sir, thank you. Thus delivering himself, Mr. Pell thrust his hands into his pocket and, frowning grimly round, rattled three halfpence with terrible determination. This virtuous resolution had scarcely been formed when the boy and the blue bag, who were inseparable companions, rushed violently into the room and said, at least the boy did, for the blue bag took no part in the announcement, that the case was coming on directly. The intelligence was no sooner received than the whole party hurried across the street and began to fight their way into the court. A preparatory ceremony which has been calculated to occupy in ordinary cases from twenty-five to thirty minutes. Mr. Weller, being stout, cast himself at once into the crowd, with the desperate hope of ultimately turning up in some place which would suit him. His success was not quite equal to his expectations, for having neglected to take his hat off, he was knocked over his eyes by some unseen person, whose toes he had alighted with considerable force. Apparently this individual regretted his impetuosity, immediately afterwards, for muttering an indistinct exclamation of surprise, he dragged the old man out into the hall, and, after a violent struggle, released his head and face. Samuel, replied Mr. Weller, when he was thus enabled to behold his rescuer. Sam nodded. You're a dutiful and affectionate little boy you are, ain't you? said Mr. Weller, to come a bonnet in your father in his old age. "'How was I to know it was you?' responded to the son. "'Do I suppose I was to tell you by the weight of your foot?' "'Well, that's very true, Sammy,' replied Mr. Weller, mollified at once. "'But what are you doing on here? "'Your governor can't do no good here, Sammy. "'They won't pass that verdict. "'They won't pass it, Sammy.' "'And Mr. Weller shook his head with legal solemnity. "'What I powers the old file it is,' exclaimed Sammy. All these are going about werdicts and alibis and that. Who said anything about the werdict? Mr. Weller made no reply, but once more shook his head most learnedly. Leave off rattling that hair nabba yearn if you don't want it to come off of the springs altogether, said Sam impatiently, and behave reasonable. I went all the way down to the Marquisa Granberry after you last night. Did you see the Marchioness or Granberry, Sammy? inquired Mr. Weller with a sigh. Yes, I did, replied Sammy. How was the dear creature looking? Very queer, said Sammy. 
I think she's injuring herself gradually with too much of that there pineapple rum and other strong medicines, all the same nature. You don't mean that, Sammy, said the senior earnestly. I do, replied the junior. Mr. Weller seized his son's hand, clasped it, and let it fall. There was an expression on his countenance in doing so, not of dismay or apprehension, but partaking more of the sweet and gentle character of hope. A gleam of resignation, and even of cheerfulness, passed over his face, too, as he slowly said, I ain't quite certain, Sammy. I wouldn't like to say I was altogether positive in case any subsequent disappointment. But I rather think, my boy, I rather think that the shepherd's got the liver complaint. Does he look bad? inquired Sam. He's uncommon pale, replied his father, except about the nose, which is redder than ever. His appetite is very so so, but he imbibes wonderful. Some thoughts of the rum appeared to obtrude themselves on Mr. Weller's mind as he said this, for he looked gloomy and thoughtful. But he was very shortly recovered, as was testified by a perfect alphabet of winks, in which he was only wont to indulge when particularly pleased. "'Vell, now,' said Sam, "'about my affair. Just open them ears of yourn and don't say nothing till I've done.' With this brief preface, Sam related, as succinctly as he could, the last memorable conversation he had with Mr. Pickwick. "'Stop there by himself, poor creature!' exclaimed the elder Mr. Weller. "'Without nobody to take his part. It can't be done, Sam Avell, it can't be done.' Oh, "'Of course it can't,' asserted Sam. "'I knowed that afore I came.' "'Well, they'll eat him up alive, Sammy exclaimed Mr. Weller. Sam nodded his concurrence in the opinion. "'He goes and rather raw, Sammy,' said Mr. Weller, metaphorically, "'and he'll come out a dun so exceedingly brown "'that his most familiar friends won't know him. "'Roast pigeons nothing to it, Sammy.' "'Again Mr. Weller nodded. "'It oughtn't to be, Samavel,' said Mr. Weller gravely. "'It mustn't be,' said Sam. "'Certainly not,' said Mr. Weller.' "'Well, now,' said Sam, "'you've been a-prophesying away very fine, "'like a red-faced Nixon on the sixpenny books gives pictures on.' "'Who was he, Sammy?' inquired Mr. Weller. "'Never mind who he was,' retorted Sam. "'He warn't a coachman, and that's enough for you.' "'I know Oslora that name,' said Mr. Weller, musing. "'It warn't him,' said Sammy. "'This here gentleman was a prophet.' "'Was a prophet?' inquired Mr. Weller, looking sternly on his son. "'Why, a man as tells what's going to happen,' replied Sam. "'I wish I'd known him, Sammy,' said Mr. Weller. "'Perhaps he might have throwed a small light on that there liver complaint as we was a-speaking on just now. Howsoever, if he's dead, and ain't left the business to nobody, and there's an end to it.' "'Go on, Sammy,' said Mr. Weller, with a sigh. "'Well,' said Sam, "'you've been a-prophesying away about what'll happen,' To the governor, if he's left alone, don't you see any way of taking care on him? No, I don't, Sammy," said Mr. Weller with a reflective visage. "No way at all," inquired Sam. "No way," said Mr. Weller, unless, and a gleam of intelligence lighted up his countenance, as he sunk his voice to a whisper and applied his mouth to the ear of his offspring. Unless it is getting him out in a turn-up bed, unbeknown to the turnkeys. Sammy are dressing him up like an old woman with a green whale. 
Sam Weller received both of these suggestions with unexpected contempt, and again propounded his question. No, said the old gentleman. If he won't let you stop there, I see no way at all. It's no thoroughfare, Sammy, no thoroughfare. Well, then, I'll tell you what it is, said Sam. I'll trouble you for the loan of five and twenty pound. What good'll that do? inquired Mr. Weller. Never mind, replied Sam. Perhaps you may ask for it in five minutes afterward. Perhaps I may say I won't pay and cut up rough. You won't think of arresting your own son for the money and sending him off to fleet, will you, you natural vagabond? At this reply of Sam's, the father and son exchanged a complete code of telegraphic nods and gestures, after which the elder Mr. Weller set himself down on a stone step and laughed till he was purple. "'What an old image it is!' exclaimed Sam, indignant at this loss of time. "'What are you sitting down there for, converting your face into a street-door knocker, when there's so much to be done? Where's the money?' "'In the boot, Sammy, in the boot,' replied Mr. Weller, composing his features. "'Hold my hat, Sammy.' Having divested himself of this encumbrance, Mr. Weller gave his body a sudden wrench to one side, and by a dexterous twist, contrived to get his right hand into a most capacious pocket, from whence, after a great deal of panting and exertion, he extricated a pocket-book of a large octave size, fastened by a huge leathern strap. From this ledger he drew forth a couple of whiplashes, three or four buckles, a little sample bag of corn, and finally a small roll of very dirty banknotes, from which he selected the required amount, which he handed over to Sam. And now, Sammy, said the old gentleman, when the whiplashes and the buckles and the samples had all been put back, and the book once more deposited at the bottom of the same pocket, now, Sammy, I know a gentleman here as'll do the rest of the business for us in no time. A limo law. Sammy has got her brains like frogs, dispersed all over the body and reaching in the weary tips of his fingers. A friend of the Lord Chancellorship, Sammy, who'd only have to tell him what he wanted and he'd lock you up for life, if that was all. I say, said Sammy, none of that. None of what? inquired Mr. Weller. Why, none of them all unconstitutional ways of doing it, retorted Sam. The haddest carcass. Next to a perpetual motion is... One of the blessedest things as was ever made. I've read that air in the newspaper very often. Well, what's that got to do with it? inquired Mr. Weller. Just this here, said Sammy, that I'll patronize the invention and go in that way. No whisperings to the chancellorship. I don't like the notion. It mayn't be altogether safe with reference to getting out again. Deferring to his son's feeling upon this point, Mr. Weller at once sought the erudite Solomon Pell, and acquainted him with his desire to issue a writ instantly for the sum of twenty-five pounds in costs of process, to be executed without delay upon the body of one Samuel Weller, the charges thereby incurred to be paid in advance to Solomon Pell. The attorney was in high glee, for the embarrassed coach-horser was ordered to be discharged forthwith. He highly approved of Sam's attachment to his master, declared that it strongly reminded him of his own feelings of devotion to his friend the Chancellor, and at once led the elder Mr. Weller down to the temple to swear the affidavit of debt, which the boy, with the assistance of the blue bag, had drawn up on the spot. 
Meanwhile, Sam, having been formally introduced to the whitewashed gentleman and his friends as the offspring of Mr. Weller, of the Belle Sauvage, was treated with marked distinction and invited to regale himself with them in honour of the occasion, an invitation which he was by no means backward in accepting. The mirth of gentlemen in this class is of a grave and quiet character usually, but the present instance was one of peculiar festivity, and they relaxed in proportion. After some rather tumultuous toasting of the chief commissioner and Mr. Solomon Pell, who had that day displayed such transcendent abilities, a mottled-faced gentleman in a blue shawl proposed that somebody should sing a song. The obvious suggestion was that the mottled-faced gentleman, being anxious for a song, should sing it himself. But this the mottled-faced gentleman sturdily, and somewhat offensively, declined to do, upon which, as it is not unusual in such cases, a rather angry colloquy ensued. Gentlemen, said the coach horser, rather than disturb the harmony of this delightful occasion, perhaps Mr. Samuel Weller will oblige the company. Rally, gentlemen, said Sam, I'm not very much in the habit of singing without the instrument, but anything for a quiet life, as the man said when he took a situation at the lighthouse. With this prelude, Mr. Samuel Weller burst at once into the following wild and beautiful legend, which, under the impression that it is not generally known, we take the liberty of quoting. We would beg to call particular attention to the monosyllable at the end of the second and fourth lines, which not only enables the singer to take a breath at those points, but greatly assists the meter. Romance Verse 1 Bold Turpin vaunts on Hounslow Heath, his bold mare bless bestrode air. Then there he seed the bishop's coach a coming along the road air. So he gallops close the horse's legs, and he clasps his head within. And the bishop says, sure as eggs is eggs, this here's the bold Turpin. Chorus. And the bishop says, sure as eggs is eggs, this here's the bold Turpin. Second verse. Says Turpin, you shall eat your words with a sarce of leaden bullet. So he puts a pistol to his mouth, and he fires it down his gullet. The coachman, he not liking the job, set off at a full gallop. But Dick put a couple of balls in his knob, and prevailed on him to stop. Chorus, sarcastically. But Dick put a couple of balls in his knob and prevailed on him to stop. I maintain that their song's personal to the cloth, said the old mottle-faced gentleman, interrupting it as this point. I demand the name of that old coachman. Nobody knowed, replied Sam. He hadn't got his card in his pocket. I object to the introduction of politics, said the mottle-faced gentleman. I submit that in the present company their song political, and what's much the same, that it ain't true. I say that that coachman did not run away, but that he died game, game as pheasants, and I won't hear nothing said to the contrary. As the mottle-faced gentleman spoke with great energy and determination, and as the opinions of the company seemed divided on the subject, it threatened to give rise to fresh altercation, when Mr. Weller and Mr. Pell most opportunely arrived. 
All right, Sammy, said Mr. Willer. The officer will be here at four o'clock, said Mr. Pell. I suppose you won't run away meanwhile, eh? Aha! Uh -huh. Perhaps my cool paw to relent afore then, replied Sam with a broad grin. Not I, said the elder Mr. Weller. Do, said Sam. Not on no account, replied the inexorable creditor. I'll give bills for the amount at sixpence a month, said Sam. I won't take em, said Mr. Weller. Ha, 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 very good, very good, said Mr. Solomon Pell, who was making out his little bill of costs. A very amusing incident, indeed. Benjamin, copy that. And Mr. Pell smiled again as he called Mr. Weller's attention to the amount. Thank you, thank you, said the professional gentleman, taking up another of the greasy notes as Mr. Weller took it from the pocket-book. Three ten and one ten is five. Much obliged to you, Mr. Weller. Your son is a most deserving young man. Very much so indeed, sir. It's a very pleasant trait in a young man's character, very much so, added Mr. Pell, smiling smoothly round as he buttoned up the money. What a game it is, said the elder Mr. Weller with a chuckle. A regular prodigy son. Prodigal, prodigal son, sir, suggested Mr. Pell mildly. Never mind, sir, said Mr. Weller with dignity. I know what's a clock. When I don't, I'll ask you, sir. By the time the officer arrived, Sam had made himself so extremely popular that the congregated gentlemen determined to see him to prison in a body. So off they set, the plaintiff and defendant walking arm in arm, the officer in front, and eight stout coachmen bringing up the rear. At Surgeon's Inn Coffee House, the whole party halted to refresh, and the legal arrangements being completed, the procession moved on again. Some little commotion was occasioned in Fleet Street by the pleasantry of the eight gentlemen in the flank who persevered in walking four abreast. It was also found necessary to leave the mottle-faced gentleman behind to fight a ticket-porter, it being arranged that his friends should call for him as they came back. Nothing but these little incidents occurred on the way. When they reached the gate of the fleet, the cavalcade, taking the time from the plaintiff, gave three tremendous cheers for the defendant, and after having shaken hands all around, left him. Sam, having been formally delivered into the warden's custody, to the intense astonishment of Rocker, and to the evident emotion of even the phlegmatic Nettie, passed at once into the prison, walked straight to his master's room, and knocked at the door. "'Come in,' said Mr. Pickwick. Sam appeared, pulled off his hat, and smiled. "'Ah, oh, Sam, my good lad,' said Mr. Pickwick, evidently delighted to see his humble friend again. "'I had no intention of hurting your feelings yesterday. "'My faithful fellow, by what I said, "'put down your hat, Sam, and let me explain my meaning a little more at length.' "'Won't presently do, sir?' inquired Sam. "'Certainly,' said Mr. Pickwick. "'But why not now?' "'I'd rather not now, sir,' rejoined Sam. "'Why?' inquired Mr. Pickwick. "'Cause,' said Sam, hesitating. "'Because of what?' inquired Mr. Pickwick, alarmed at his follower's manner. "'Speak out, Sam.' "'Cause,' rejoined Sam. "'Cause I've got a little business as I want to do.' 
"'What business?' inquired Mr. Pickwick, surprised at Sam's confused manner. "'Nothing particular, sir,' replied Sam. "'Oh, if it's nothing particular,' said Mr. Pickwick, with a smile, "'you can speak with me first. "'I think I'd rather better see after it once,' said Sam, still hesitating. Mr. Pickwick looked amazed, but said nothing. "'The fact is,' said Sam, stopping short. "'Well,' said Mr. Pickwick, "'speak out, Sam.' "'Why, the fact is,' said Sam, with a desperate effort, "'perhaps I'd better see out her my bed, afore I do anything else.' "'Your bed?' exclaimed Mr. Pickwick in astonishment. "'Yes, my bed,' replied Sam. "'I'm a prisoner. I was arrested this here wery afternoon for debt.' "'You arrested for debt?' exclaimed Mr. Pickwick, sinking into a chair. "'Yes, for debt, sir,' replied Sam.' "'And the man as puts me in'll never let me out till you go yourself.' "'Bless my heart and soul,' ejaculated Mr. Pickwick. "'What do you mean?' "'What I say, sir,' rejoined Sam. "'If it's forty year to come, I shall be prisoner. "'I'm very glad on it. "'And if it had been Newgate, I would have been just the same. "'Now the murderer's out, and damn, there's an end on it.' "'With these words, which he repeated with great emphasis and violence, Sam Weller dashed his hat upon the ground in a most unusual state of excitement, and then folding his arms looked firmly and fixedly at his master's face. End of chapter 43 Read by Patty Brugman